on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Trenton Merricks about the self and identity. So we cover all sorts of topics like what do we mean when we're talking about the self and identity? What are the typical ways the self has been understood? What is the relationship between persistence and what matters in survival? And how does thinking about what matters in survival relevant to the, na- to the nature and desirability of personal immortality? and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners back to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for serious church. But we want to do that with particular virtues in mind. So we've sought to try to develop and create and cultivate and encourage an intellectual culture of sorts that values things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So while we are very serious theologically, we're also curious theologically and philosophically. We want to hear and understand all sorts of things. And we think that's good for us. We think that that can encourage us and grow us as Christians. And so we seek to do those sort of things. And today, I am really honored to introduce you all to Dr. Trenton Merricks. I have benefited from his work from many years now and have wrestled with his work more than some other. Quite, you know, there's certain people that you read over and over. And I feel like I've read Dr. Merrick's stuff way more than I've read other people because I'm trying to grapple with the arguments and, and to engage them and to think through them because they're powerful. Uh, I love the way that he writes. I, I like the things he says. He's very provocative in some of his stuff. So if you know him, he's going to say there's things like there are no tables or chairs, which, you know, if I told that to most people in the street, they'd probably think, you know, that's crazy talk. But I know most of our listeners are philosophical nerds to some degree, so they probably understand what that where that's going. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to talk to him about the, uh, the topic of the self and identity, which is his most recent book. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So Dr. Merricks, before we get going, can you give me just a little bit of background of what you're doing now, where you're at, and then why did you become so interested in thinking about the self and identity? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I'm a, a professor of philosophy at the University of Virginia. That's where I am. Um, you know, my main interest in philosophy uh, since graduate school has been mostly in metaphysics, uh, and but also uh, relatedly in philosophy, religion, and, and a bunch of other things. I think talking about uh, personal identity and so on um, is a really way to to do metaphysics uh, in a way that kind of clearly, obviously matters. Um, you know, you, you you made the kind of, uh, that was a really nice introduction, by the way. Uh, you, you made the comment in your introduction about me saying there aren't chairs and tables. And, um, you know, what I think there are instead are a bunch of micro microparticles, quote, arranged table-wise, unquote. And you could imagine somebody thinking, you know, why does that matter? Like, okay, so maybe there's just a bunch of atoms in front of me and they're piled up tabley. And maybe other people think, no, there's also a table there. And you might think, once you wrap your head around the distinction and the arguments for and against it, you might think, well, okay, but who cares? Why is that important? I mean, I'm a metaphysics nerd, so I think it's super important all on its own. But I think, you know, when, when, uh, when you start talking about yourself, you know, I mean, it, this really matters. Are there just a bunch of atoms arranged a certain way in my chair? Or do I also exist? <laughs> um, 
So I think, I hope it's clear to you that that really does matter. Uh, and um, so I kind of like issues around personal identity because they're issues that um, really fall under the umbrella of a lot of the metaphysical questions I'm interested in just in general. But they're um, instances of those questions that I feel like are kind of evidently important um, and I also believe have real uh, and pretty immediate engagement with issues in philosophy of religion. Um, maybe a world in which there's just microscopic objects and not tables is one that's perfectly consistent with the Christian faith. I think a world in which they're just microscopical, microscopic particles, but no human beings made in God's image is not. Um, so I guess that's, that's the really big, big picture why I find this topic uh, particularly interesting. That's good. So then let's just talk, let's do some baseline definitions a little bit. What do we mean when we're talking about the self and identity? So we have a lot of theologians who also listen to the podcast who like philosophical things, but aren't immersed in the literature to where they understand all the nuances. Yeah. I think both the words, the self, the expression of the self and the expression identity can mean about a billion different things. So I think in a way, I don't want to legislate a meaning. Um, I'll tell you why. So your the new book is called Self and Identity. And the reason I picked that title is because the book is about kind of the intersection of the ethics of personal identity and the metaphysics. And in my mind, I don't know if anyone else's, talk of the self uh, is really more prominent in the ethics of personal identity and talk about identity over time or persistence or just identity is more prominent in the metaphysics literature. So in my mind, self and identity is sort of a super um, compact way to signal ethics of personal identity and metaphysics. Um, the way I use the term the self in this book, and it's not um, the only way you could use it, I use the self to be a, a shorthand for a collection of psychological states, values, desires, commitment to pursuing certain projects, living a certain kind of life. Um, the reason I use that uh, notion is because um, it it gives a compact way to talk about a pretty common view that I personally want to oppose. And that view is that if you undergo a quote unquote change of self, that is a change in your kind of core values, desires, and projects, then that's the practical equivalent of you no longer existing. Um, and so I call that the self-review. Um, uh, identity, on the other hand, the way we'll use it in this conversation has to do with just the metaphysics of persistence. So is it the same human being in my chair now that was there a week ago? Is it the same physical object? I think we're physical objects. Is it the same object if you if you're a dualist and you think each human person is a soul, that's not me. But if you think that, you still have this distinction: is it the same same soul over time? And what if the soul undergoes lots of changes in psychological states? Then you could think it's the same soul but a different self. So you would still have the same self versus identity contrast that I'm interested in. That's cool. So I know you're not a historian, but when we are thinking about these topics, I mean, the self especially seems to have a lot of baggage that comes with it. So what are some way, typical ways maybe the self has been understood, whether that's folk ways, yeah. so we can orient ourselves to maybe the options on the table and what we are talking about? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to answer a slightly different question, if that's okay. 
but I'll mention Leibniz, so it'll sound historical. He used the word historian. Um, so I don't really know what all the, you know, what you just described as kind of the folk ways. I'm not really, in some ways, not that interested. I just think you, it's totally legitimate to use expressions like the self or identity in all kinds of different ways. Um, but I think you get uh, conce the conceptual distinction that's important to the book, you get at least as far back as Leibniz. So let me talk about that. So Leibniz... Um, Leibniz was a philosopher in, I think, the 1600s. <laughs> I don't know if the historians out there or people with access to Google can know. Um, and he, you know, he has this discussion, and the context of the discussion is actually uh, uh, immortality. And um, But in the discussion, and, and it's important to know that Leibniz was a big fan of uh, Chinese culture and philosophy. He was, he was kind of knew as much maybe as almost any European at the time would know about that. He would interview uh, returning Jesuit missionaries uh, from China. And uh, so he's a big admirer of China, partly because it was about as big as Europe and wasn't at war with itself, um, uh, like Europe was in, in Leibniz's day. So he's a big admirer of China. And so uh, he would think that like being the ruler of China would be an amazing thing. And he has this uh, line, he mentions it, I think, in the monodology and also in a letter to another scholar. Uh, he has a line where he says, look, um, it would, I'll paraphrase, it would be great to become the king of China, but not under any conditions. For example, if someone were to have all their memories erased and become the king of China, this would be the practical equivalent of annihilation. So notice that Leibniz is basically saying, uh, um, suppose you, you, this very person, this very soul, this very human organism, whatever you think you are, suppose this very thing became the king of China. If it underwent a change in self, if it in particular lost all of its memories, uh, this wouldn't be good for the you of right now. That wouldn't be something, says Leibniz, for you to desire. That wouldn't be appropriate desire. Why? Because it would be the practical equivalent of annihilation. So he's drawing a distinction between you're literally continuing to exist, in my language, a future person being identical with you, or again, in my language, you're persisting as a future person, and on the other hand, what it would be appropriate for you to kind of regard that person as being yourself, or basically regard that person as a replacement for practical purposes. Um, so Leibniz is, in my, you know, Maybe I'm missing someone, but I think the first really, really clear case where you get this distinction between what philosophers now call what matters in survival versus identity or persistence. So Leibniz would say, um, if you lose all your memories, it's the practical equivalent of annihilation. And now in kind of more contemporary terminology, you would no longer have what matters in survival for you. Uh, but it would still be the same object. So talk to me a little bit more about that, because my intuition is to think that that's not the case. You're, it's not really a replacement. Even, you know, in the cases of amnesia, I think of Jason Bourne, where, like he's got his memories wiped and he doesn't remember anything. Though slowly over time, it seems some things are recalled. But my intuition is to say, no, that, that you still are the same person, even if you've yeah. changed. In I completely place. I completely agree with you. Um, and in fact, the book, Self and Identity, is really defending exactly the claim that you just made. Um, uh, so mainly, but I also agree with Leibniz in the conceptual distinction. You know, I think it's a substantive claim to say, 
if, you know, if I'm identical with a future person, that is, if I persist as that person, then that person has what matters in survival for me. I don't think that's trivial. Um, so I think it, I think it can be defended and I do defend it. It sounds like you're saying that's the view that you're like inclined toward anyway. Um, maybe it's the view most people are inclined toward. Um, um, I'll return to that in a second. Uh, but nevertheless, in the philosophical literature, there's a lot of opposition to it. And so I do think it's a view that can be defended and should be. Um, I will say, uh, I think people are, you know, just talking to random people about these topics that comes up sometimes are kind of inconsistent, you know, so maybe a lot of people when they watch the Bourne movies have the view that you exactly have. And the Bourne movies are super cool. Um, uh, but, um, I've also heard people say things like, you know, my mother has dementia. She's not the same person. Um, I mean, they don't quite put it this way, but they communicate. It's basically no different than if she died and been replaced by a new person. Um, I think that's absolutely the, the, the wrong view to have. Um, but I do think that's pretty intuitive. So in a lot of the discussions where people are arguing if you were to lose your memories or if you were to change your personality radically and change your values radically, that it wouldn't really be you. That is, for all practical purposes, um, uh, dementia is often a topic that they focus on as a kind of paradigm example. And so I think, you know, maybe just like everything, I mean, it's hard to have consistent views. Um, my guess is if there is kind of what the, you know, average... I don't know, 21st century American thinks about these topics. It's probably an inconsistent mix where they think it's, you know, Jason Bourne has been, uh, he's been harmed and he's trying to get his memories back. On the other hand, they might also think in a case of dementia that it's not really their mom. On the other hand, they might also think they should pay for their mother's hospital bills. It's really hard to fit all of that together yeah. if she's really a different person for practical purposes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, the dementia thing is interesting because I, I, I've read a little bit in like disability sort of studies as it relates to theology. And there does seem to be a strong stream of saying, if I were to lose this, whatever this disability is, then I'm no longer myself. Yeah. Um, and I, I find that hard to accept with different scriptural commitments. But when it comes to the philosophical landscape, maybe what's the what's the reason that you take the position that you do in contrast yeah. to these other potential objections? I should just, just to back up, I do think, I do think uh, if people say, if I were to lose this disability or people say, if I were to gain this disability, you know, it wouldn't really be me. I think those are also mistakes. I, I focus in the book mostly on losing or gaining psychological features. Cause that's really where there's the most literature on, but I just think in general, um, uh, in general, we can undergo astonishing amounts of change while kind of, for all practical purposes, continuing to exist. Um, I guess there are, I'll give you two different lines of thought uh, um, for why I think um, persistence is sufficient for survival. Uh, the first one will be a little in maybe just a kind of intuitive example because it fits better with what we just talked about. And the second one will be um, a little more officially philosophical. Um, if you start off thinking about dementia, for example, um, um, I can, uh, you know, that will, for some people, pushes them in a certain direction where they want to say, you know, maybe it's not really the same person. 
But I think if you start off thinking about childhood <laughs> and children growing into uh, adulthood, um, and we look, I mean, I'm, I'm a parent, all my kids are in their 20s now, but you know, I remember like when each of them was a toddler, I'd look at that toddler and I would want for that toddler's sake that I have, I have a daughter and two sons that she or he would grow up uh, to be a healthy adult human being. Um, and I didn't think of that as the practical equivalent of that toddler ceasing to exist. Um, I thought of that as part of what it would be for that toddler's good. Um, but notice that a toddler becoming a 30-year-old, for example, that's as much change, I would think, psychologically, as uh, as someone becoming demented, honestly. Um, so I think one, you know, one reason that I'm inclined to think persistence delivers survival is um, I want to push away from starting with amnesia examples, uh, which can often be a little bit fictional. Um, I mean, there are some cases of dementia like that, but other cases aren't. Um, and focusing on uh, childhood and the, and the change from, I don't know, newborn infant to seven-year-old um, I think it illustrates a lot of things. Some other people want to say, so this is a little different than the what I call the self-review. Uh, it's like, as I read her, Christine Korsgaard wants to say that you continue to have what matters in survival in terms of agency, just in case, you know, you're controlling the changes, even if the changes are radical, as long as at some point it's connected to your agency and your will. But again, I think if you think about a child going through puberty, for example, like that, that's just that's from out of the blue that, that, that hits them. They don't choose it, uh, but it results in radical changes. Um, so that's, that's one big picture answer. Um, another one that is, uh, really the heart of the first part of the book, um, is arguing for a certain metaphysical view of persistence over time. So this will be the kind of most metaphysically part of our exchange probably, um, there are different views about what it means to say you persist as a future person. So I don't know if you know stage theory or four-dimensionalism. There are a lot of different views. The view that I defend uh, is called endurance. Um, and it's just the view that my relation to uh, Trenton Merrick's 20 years from now is numerical identity. That is that, you know, rather than me, rather than being a series of numerically distinct objects that somehow bundled together to be me, um, or rather than being a series of uh new objects every instant that I'm related to one of those new objects in the future in some special way that makes it count as me. My view is just super intuitively way to put it is there's one object here and it kind of moves through time. So I'm related to Merrick's in 20 years in exactly the same way I'm related to Merrick's of right now, namely numerical identity. Here's a premise. It's appropriate for me to have self-interested concern for the experiences that uh, Merrick's of right now is having <laughs> that almost seems trivial, <laughs> but I think that one thing that makes that appropriate is that I'm identical with the person who has those experiences. So if I were to tell you, Jordan, you know, um, uh, you know, somebody has a headache right now, is it appropriate for you to regard that headache as yours? And then I add, oh, and you're identical with that person. You know, obviously, I think almost everybody would say, yes, of course it's appropriate. But I think that the relation to future me is the same relation as relation to current me, identity. So I think since identity makes self-interest concern appropriate at a time, it makes it appropriate over time. 
And therefore, if that person will be me, it's appropriate for me to regard their experiences as my own. And that's the most central aspect of what matters in survival. Yeah, I I find endurantism super intuitive and it makes sense to me. But it seems like I've read a significant amount of people who want to defend some version of four-dimensionalism. Is there a reason for that? Because I just, it seems so weird and it seems to have a lot of potential issues like what's motivating wanting to do that i do think it's super weird and i think it's worse maybe even than people think it is and so there's in the book some new criticisms of four-dimensionalism i you know i don't know if i had to pick one motivation for it um it's it's definitely the uh, uh paradox of change and so if A is identical with B and A has has property, then B has that property. So if you're, I don't know, if Susan is identical with Professor Smith and Professor Smith lives in Virginia, then we know Susan lives in Virginia. Um, so that's a pretty, I don't know, maybe the most uncontroversial thesis about identity I can think of. Say so is identical with B, everything true of A is true of B. Um, then people worry, well, look, if I'm identical with Merrick's in 20 years, Merrick's in 20 years, you know, maybe has white hair. I don't have white hair. Um, so how could I really be identical? I must not. I think that objection only makes sense if you think of future times as kind of as real as the present. <laughs> um, and so the idea that there really is this white haired dude 20 years from now out there somewhere and how am I, you know, I totally get the thought that I couldn't be identical with him. Um, but I think that's the absolute wrong way to think about time. I think um, there's not some white-haired dude out there. I think when I say Merrick's of 20 years from now is white hair, what I mean is it will be the case in 20 years that I have white hair. Now, this got really weird, but I think the reason people like four-dimensionalism is the story I just told looks like it presupposes a view of time that some people think is inconsistent with special relativity. And so there's kind of scientific reasons to think about time in a certain way that some people think combined with change press against endurance. I will say, I think it's super complicated. Um, I've talked to people who really, really know the physics. I mean, I used to do this, you know, back in the, I don't know, when I was first starting out, uh, whenever I could, I would corner them. And uh, my understanding, uh, based on authority, not my own expertise, is that everything that's uh, empirically, you know, important about special relativity can be accommodated by presentism. It might involve some changes in the theory. It might not. But it's all super complicated. And I'm not an expert on that. Very interesting. Well, I don't want to spend all our time on the metaphysics of time. So <laughs> we'll stick here. Um, one question that I have is when we're thinking about what matters in survival, how is that relevant to the nature and desirability of personal immortality and resurrection? I think most of our listeners are Christians. So this is something that they are very interested in. And how does that philosophy, where does the rubber meet the road when it comes to certain Christian doctrines? Great question. So in the book, you asked about the whole final chapters on that. Um, I, I think I think uh, there are two things I want to say. One is when we think about immortality, uh, sometimes we can use the language of persistence or identity and say what it is to live forever in God's presence is you know is for me this very this very object to continue to persist forever. 
I kind of think what we really want is not just that, but we want um, we want to not just have eternal persistence in God's presence, but we want to have uh, have what matters in survival. That is, you know, I mean, to take a silly example, um, you know, if I said, "Hey, you're gonna you're going to exist forever." but you'll be unconscious, <laughs> you know, you'll be a corpse forever or you'll be a sleeping soul forever. You might think, no, that's not what I want. <laughs> um, so one thing I think thinking about what matters in survival and persistence together can help us maybe better articulate just the idea of personal mortality. I claim in the book, I believe that it's the idea that someone will forever have what matters in survival for me. I also think that I'll have that if and only if I will persist forever. So again, that's the. I think these things go together, but I think they're conceptually distinct. The other thing that, I mean, just to pick one, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the tedium objection to immortality. It's super common. Um, it's the view that, you know, living forever under any circumstances wouldn't be good because eventually we'd be completely bored and we'd want, and we would want it to end. Um, so it's most associated with um, with the philosopher Bernard Williams. He has a kind of famous paper in the 70s on this. Um, I think you can find it in Lucretius way back, long time ago. Um, it's really weirdly popular in the culture. Do you, do you know the television series The Good Place? Have you seen that? I have not. I have, not. Do you, have you heard of it? I am vaguely familiar with it. You'll need yeah. to fill in the gaps for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a fairly popular television show about, uh, well, I don't want to give too much away, but about heaven and hell. Um, uh, and um, I am going to give something away now. So if people don't want to know anything about the ending, you know, I don't know what you should do. You should, you should hang up. Uh, but um, at the end, you have these people who have been in heaven for a very, 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 very long time. And eventually they're like, yeah, there's just nothing left for me to do. And so they kind of step through a doorway that involves their annihilation. And uh, yeah, the TV show kind of motivates that as a non-crazy thing. And I've heard a lot of people tell me, hey, have you seen The Good Place? I find that really plausible that immortality would be would ultimately just not be so great. Um, and the more kind of... Actually, I think the good place actually has a character who 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 uh, undergoes some radical changes, and she doesn't uh, annihilate herself, as far as the show tells us. So, I mean, one way, one response to the tedium objection is to say that look, maybe immortality would be tedious if you were kind of static, if you were kind of if you had the same desires, same thing. You know, you're like, how often can I eat barbecue? You know, at a certain point, I'm, you know, or whatever. Um, I don't know, Jordan, I don't know where you're from, but I, for some reason I associated you with barbecue. Well, I'll take it. <laughs> I like barbecue. Um, I thought. Um, uh, so, you know, one thing, you know, here's another view of heaven. Uh, the view you get in Gregory of Nyssa, for example. Uh, heaven involves continuous change and growth. And in, in Gregory of Nyssa, at least, um, you're becoming more and more like God forever. And I think if you're undergoing kind of radical change forever, um, then the tedium objection just doesn't work at all. Um, and interestingly enough, that view of heaven makes it weirdly continuous with this life, because in this life, we are undergoing astonishing change. I mean, you know, in a mere 80 years, 
the difference between a newborn baby, for example, or a late-term fetus and an elderly, you know, person who's lived, say, an amazing life um, is staggering. And that's just 80 years. I mean, think about a billion years from now. Um, so I, I personally think, you know, one of, in my view, the best and most absolutely uh, compelling response to the tedium objection is it presupposes that the sort of immortality Christians believe in, at least, is going to be static, but it doesn't have to be. It could, in fact, involve radical changes. Defenders of the tedium objection, and I'm thinking in particular of uh, Williams himself, but also Shelley Kagan in a book called Death. It's a really great introduction to these topics. It's you know, it's super clearly written. Um, you know, Kagan and Williams will both say, look, either you're going to basically not change much or you're going to change a ton. If you're not going to change much, then it'll be boring. But if you are going to change a ton, that's what Jeff McMahon also takes this one. If you are going to change a ton, then at a certain point, it won't, quote, really be you. Because you can't survive radical change. And I think, you know, if... If, in fact, persistence is sufficient for survival and you can survive through radical psychological and other sorts of changes, then I think we can block the tedium objection and we can block the, in particular, the argument that says if the only way to avoid the tedium objection is to go radical change, well, that would, really wouldn't be you anyway. That's super helpful. So I, yeah, so I kind of think crooked about these topics, you know, even, again, just in the going from being a little child to being an adult, um, if you can survive that sort of change, um, it's hard to see why you would think you couldn't survive the sorts of changes, the glorification and continued existence in communion with God and others would, would bring. Yeah, that's good. So one thing I want to make sure to ask you, um, we got a lot of theologians, a lot of pastors who listen to the podcast, and they're all very interested in philosophy. You're a serious philosopher, so what would you encourage theologians and pastors to devote their time to? Like, what areas of philosophy do you think is going to be the most, give them the most payoff? And then maybe a second part to that question is, or maybe it's the first part of it, is just motivating why philosophy in general can be beneficial to a theologian or a pastor. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to, you know, maybe for some of them, they don't need to study philosophy at all. You should do whatever you want to do. <laughs> but I do think um, I do think that if you find yourself in your pastoral work having philosophical questions, and if you're, I think everybody, regardless of what their particular projects and goals are, should be curious and unafraid to ask hard questions. Um, I think if you're really curious in your work as a pastor, theologian, or really almost any other kind of work, um, you're probably going to sometimes have philosophical questions. And I think the good news is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are all kinds of people who've been thinking about these questions for a long time. So I guess one thing, I wouldn't so much say, hey, you have to be interested in philosophy. I would say be super curious. And if you find out through being curious uh, that you're coming up with philosophical questions, um, you know, you should be encouraged to know you don't have to do these on your own. Um so I would say, in a way, you know, once you figure out what your philosophical questions are, then try and go looking for for resources. Um, and I think that might vary from person to person. That's good. So what when it, let's think metaphysics specifically. Uh, we've got quite a few listeners who are interested in how metaphysics 
interrelate with things like the doctrine of God and Christology. What are your top resources on just metaphysics in general and maybe ones that might have more payoff to those sort of discussions? You know, I'm really sorry to say I might be the worst person to ask this because like when you say, what are your resources for metaphysics? I'm thinking of like the super narrow focus thing that I'm working on right now. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't, um, I don't know what could be written for someone who's never thought about metaphysics. Well, before. give me the super uh, narrow one. Um, you know, sub- subscribe to faith and philosophy. <laughs> Join so that's the journal of the Society of Christian Philosophers. Um, every article in there should be of interest to at least uh, some people with theological commitments who are have philosophical questions. Uh, actually it's uh, now an open access journal, so you don't have to subscribe. I would encourage you to donate to the society of Christian philosophers and then, uh, go on the faith and philosophy website and just scroll through there. And you can almost tell by the titles and certainly by the abstracts, which articles will be on topics that you're interested in. Um, that's always been a well edited venue. Um, uh, so that might be the, if, you know, if you want us something kind of professional level, but one place to go, uh, uh, that would be my best advice. That's good. I, I would second that. So now for more philosophically inclined students, what advice would you give them as they are being formed into a philosopher? I know you supervise PhD students. What's the typical advice that seems to get the most mileage out of all your students that you say, this is what's most helpful to them as they are becoming formed into philosophers? Man, I mean, it could depend on the student, (laughs) Um, but I think, uh, um, I mean, this will will be super practical, not particularly spiritual. Um, I think they need to have a writing schedule that they stick with. Um, You know, it's funny, you know, if you're a TA or you have some club or meeting you got to attend to attend to you know if you don't show up for those duties somebody knows and you get in trouble but really nobody is asking you how many hours did you write this week Uh oh now you're in trouble you didn't so one bit of advice i i always give all my students or even like people who are just who have uh, professor jobs and are starting out um there's all kinds of external pressure to do lots of things no external pressure to write every day or to write a certain number of hours a week but if you don't write a certain number of hours a week, you don't get your PhD. Or if you do get your PhD, you don't write a certain number of hours a week, you get fired, you don't get tenure. Um, so one thing is just kind of realizing that um, if you're going to succeed in this field, you, you need to um, you need to figure out a way to write regularly. And you need to know that no one's going to help you do that. Um, you've got to do that yourself. They're going to pressure and voices pulling in lots of different directions. But um, that's one thing. Yeah. Uh, second thing I would say is try and write as clearly as you possibly can. And if you don't really know, you don't really understand something, um, kind of don't roll with it because everybody knows it's right. You know, just make sure you either understand it. If you don't, then go ahead and disagree with it. But um, clarity in your thinking and your writing is, I think, kind of the most important first step. Um, 
So I know those are two things. Those are super good advice. So now I've got a softball question for you. Um, it's somewhat twofold. First, for those who are interested in following along with your work, where's the best place to go to keep up with publications and things like that? Yeah. And then second, I'm just curious, what's your next project? Tell me, give me, you know, the, the high level elevator pitch on what's going on with that. Yeah. So your first question is easy to answer. Uh, I have a website, uh, trentonmerricks.com. Um, it's a really great website. My daughter's a web developer. It was a Christmas present from her. <laughs> but you can get PDFs of all my papers on there for free, uh, and you can get links to my books. Um, you can't get those for free. But they're all published by Oxford University Press, and if you have a lot, uh, university library account, you can probably get um, access to Oxford Scholarship Online, which has full text uh, for free, too. So, um, But yeah, so my website, if you Google my name, that should be the first hit you get um, also. Uh, second thing, um, I'm not sure, you know, I'm working on a couple papers right now. I don't really want to talk about them because they're kind of one-off things. I just finished a book, came out in America in April, came out uh, in the UK in January called Self- Stuff like that. You asked about that. That's what we've been talking about. Um, so I'm kind of in this little kind of interim interim space where um, got a couple papers I'm doing just to uh, have talks to give and so on. Um, I think the next book might also be on uh, on personal identity, but on the kind of metaphysics of um, kind of defending the claim that uh, human persons actually really do exist. Surprisingly, there are a lot of different challenges to that. Uh, there's challenges from just general metaphysics. You know, for the some people have views about composition, the kind of views that I have for tables and chairs, they have for persons. There's uh, challenges from um, Buddhist philosophy, uh, interesting enough, and you know, from kind of Hume that's maybe influenced by Buddhist philosophy. And there's also challenges from cognitive science where people want to say, you know, there's this mental state over here, there's this mental state over there, but there's no one thing that has them. Um, So maybe the next book will be uh, um, about the uh, existence of each of us. Um, uh, But I don't know. We'll see. I've got some ideas, but I haven't even written anything yet. So we'll see. Well, I like those ideas. So if you do choose to pursue that, I'd love to talk about that as well. Um, so this has been really great. So thank you for giving us, I mean, you give us a nice overview and some explanation on everything. This is super helpful for those who've been listening. I do want to commend all of Dr. Merrick's work. You, as he said, go to trentonmerricks.com. You can find all of his publications there. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, I've been really helped and challenged by his work uh, more than almost, I mean, I'd probably put you in my top five philosopher category of uh, people that I've found the most useful in thinking through issues. So you're rigorous, you're clear, uh, you present arguments and objections, and I mean, I can't ask for anything better. So thank you for your labors and those things, uh, Dr. Merricks, and everybody who's listening, check him out. He's awesome. And for those who have been listening so far, as you know, you've been tuning into the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.